So tonight, we're continuing our conversation about the body. And I thought you might like to know a favorite definition that comes from my beloved husband. He says, a helicopter is nothing more than than an assembly of parts flying in loose formation. So you could say the same thing for the body, right? The body is nothing more than an assembly of parts, 32 or more, depending on how you count, flying in loose formation. So as you recite that list, you can think about that. Kabir, in a little bit more serious note, says, be strong then and enter into your own body. There you have a solid place for your feet. Think about it carefully. Don't go off somewhere else. Kabir says this, just throw away all thoughts of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are. So often when I teach, I talk about the mysteriousness of being and I like to think about the evolution of all things from that strange and distant and really in many ways unknown moment that we call the Big Bang and the unfolding of all things since then, the unfolding and development of galaxies and stars and planets and then at least on this planet, life emerging probably on other planets as well And then in that life, as it develops some form of consciousness, and more more recently amongst conscious beings, pretty late in the game actually, all of us, us human beings. And of course that means you and me. You know, we don't know what comes next. You know, I used to think that we were the pinnacle of evolution. Now I sometimes think maybe we're an evolutionary mistake and once they get rid of us, things will be much better. But we don't know. So we're here at this particular point in the evolution of everything. And here we are in these things, this loose assemblage of parts that calls itself a body. Um, And there are many, many, many parts. I was trying to think today. I went online to try to see if I could find a list of all the body parts. I don't know how small you'd have to get. But you could imagine, you know, there might be I don't know, hundreds of things on that list if you got really small. Maybe Bob could write us a new chant of the 273 body parts or something like that. And we've talked in here a few times about how this practice, taking the time to be with each item on the list, head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinew, bone, bone marrow, kidneys, that's as far as we've gotten today. Really being with each of those parts, reflecting on them, inhabiting them as we talk about them. We're being intimate with our own bodies, which is something we don't so often do. You know, it's a little easy, I think, to get going at high speed and to forget that the body is actually what's holding us up. 
So tonight in this talk, one of the things I'm going to talk about quite a lot actually is my own body. It's really the only one that I know intimately enough to discuss from the inside out. And conveniently, perhaps, it's been having some interesting experiences lately. So um, I can talk about those with you. And certainly one of the things we see, and I'm sure you're all thinking about already, and we've heard it some in some of the questions, is that this intimacy with the body isn't always so easy. Sometimes it's tough. So here's the beginning part of at least some of the story which is my eyes. Maybe some of you noticed I put on one pair of glasses and then I put on the other pair of glasses and then I took the glasses off, which basically means I can kind of sort of see the notes, but I can't very much see uh, those of you who are out there. And my eyes are complicated, actually. I've had two cataract surgeries, one in each eye, and I have glaucoma, which I'm working on, and I've had a macular hole in the left eye, and then a second macular hole in the right eye. And um, woke up recently on the 1st of July at the end of a surgery with my retinal surgeon kind of looking me in the face and telling me that, uh, in fact, I had a retina that was attempting to detach. And so he had treated that. And um, what it effectively means right now the treatment means is I have no vision in my right eye. So this is kind of interesting. We hope it's temporary. Um, But it's definitely a challenge. So you might be thinking already, I know I did. It's like, well, eyes, wait a minute. Those 32 parts, there's not any eyes. (laughs) How can that be? You know, the eyes are kind of a pretty big deal. So here's a definition for Um, the eye. The eye is a complex optical system which collects light from the surrounding environment, regulates its intensity through a diaphragm, focuses it through an adjustable assembly of lenses to form an image, converts this image into a set of electrical signals, and transmits these signals to the brain through complex neural pathways that connect the eye via the optic nerve to the visual cortex and other areas of the brain. Like, wow, (laughs) who would know? You know, you're just looking at me, right? You didn't know that all of these things were happening in your eye while you were just looking. It's really amazing. I mean, eyes are astounding what they do. They're the source of so much information. We had that really great question, I love it, when we have that question this morning about, well, should I sit with my eyes open? Or should I sit with my eyes closed? And you know, if you're open, there's a lot of stimulation. Sometimes that's too much. But if you're closed, sometimes there's not enough and then you fall asleep. Sometimes for other people, it's the other way around. They close their eyes and they get all these great light shows and images and daydreams. And so keeping them open helps to bring more alertness. It's always a question of skillful means, as we said this morning. So these eyes, they're busy and they're always taking information and they're taking in the outer world, they're taking in the art. You go around and look at these beautiful tankas that are hanging on the wall. You look at each other. You know, they're amazing things to go and to see. I'll probably talk more about it later in the retreat, but I just came back from Burning Man 
And, you know, at Burning Man, there's a lot to see out there, lots of fabulous art and really interesting people. And, um, and so the eyes keep very, very busy uh, while I'm there. And often the eyes are the pathway to emotional closeness. You know, how many times have you heard some variation of this line, they gazed deeply into each other's eyes? You know, and then something happens, right? How does that, how does that work? We, and we really have some sense of each other and of the personality and the being through the eyes, through the eyes. And they're not on the list. In fact, the only sense organ on the list is the skin. No ears, no nose, no tongue, you know? So it's interesting to think, well, what were they thinking? I don't know. Maybe Bob knows. Maybe he'll tell us later. But they're not, they're not there. So certainly in our own personal lists, and especially for those of us who have some issues with some piece of this or other, you might want to have it on your personal list of body parts. So when I was thinking about this talk, I called it From Grumpiness to Gratitude. And, and that's still what I'm calling it, actually. And when I found out that I didn't have any vision in my right eye, I was not happy. In fact, I was annoyed. I expected to wake up from that surgery with everything finished and done. And instead, I found out that the whole process was going to go on a lot longer. And how, how could this be? You know, how could I, I've had pretty good health most of my life, be disabled or impaired or deficient or needy, all of those things that come to mind when something like this happens. And we had that other great question this morning, what do I do when, you know, I get to some body part that's not working so well? You know, how, how do I hold that? And we often have lots of aversion when things aren't functioning well, you know, they're not working, they don't look so great, they're not so beautiful. Now think of, I love that statistic that Bob quoted last night, the person who assembled all on the Excel spreadsheet, you know, all the money she'd spent on things to make herself look great, you know? And thousands of dollars. We've all done it. We've all done it. Maybe not as many thousands as she has, but maybe more. Or, but we work hard trying to look good. Or think back to those really painful years when you were maybe like 15 or 16, looking with just adolescent agony in the mirror because your face had spots or you were a little too this or too that and you don't look like the ideal kind of, you know, teenager the movie star, whoever it is that you're modeling yourself after, the, the perfect body. Or you think about, think of this enormous sadness and pain that has happened in our world because people are not the right skin color, right? And people who, who dismiss other people because of their skin color or people who feel like they don't belong because of their skin color. You know, it's a hugely big thing and it's just pigment, you know? It's still, we're all people in there and we just come in interesting colors. 
Or maybe you've had, you know, one of those diagnoses and you've learned that you were seriously ill or are seriously ill and the enormous grief that can arise when that happens. Or we, we are in an accident and some part is permanently damaged. Just today's parts, you know, I was thinking, well, head hair, you know, head hair, we talk about a bad hair day, you know, like bad hair, you know. <laughs> it's, or, it's, or it's too frizzy, or it's gone. Although I'd like to point out that Bob is not as bald as he looks, you know. <laughs> he shaves a whole lot of it back there. He could be one of these really interesting guys with long hair and a ponytail down the back <laughs> if he'd just let it happen. So I don't know about baldness. Or body hair, you know, unwanted body hair. How many times have we seen that in advertisements? You know, like, how can you not want your body hair? Or, you know, and it needs to be trimmed and it needs to be shaped or there's too much or there's too little. Or your teeth are too crooked or they're too discolored or they're falling out or they need a root canal. Or your skin has acne or it's too dry or it's saggy or it's got age spots in it or you don't have enough muscles and they're not buffed enough and they're not tight enough or they're weak and your sinews and bones are often injured. You know, maybe you have a plate in one of your bones. I have one in mine. Bob has a screw in his foot. We probably could have quite a stack of metal if we collected it all together. Sometimes, you know, bones are crooked and difficult. Bone marrow can have really serious diseases associated with it, as can the kidneys. It goes on and on and on. All of the parts are subject to pain. They bring grief and lamentation and despair to all of us. All of them are impermanent. They're constantly changing and being replaced. And their condition is constantly changing. And they do this all on their own without consulting us. Really. You know, nobody asked my, my eye did not ask my permission to develop a macular hole. Neither eye asked permission, actually. So we've begun this progression through the parts and considering those that are on the list and those that are not. And the suggestion is to be with them just as they are and to hold them with kindness and friendliness and to be really interested in what's going on in there. What's going on? So I have this eye that's not working and I'm required to live with it. There's absolutely nothing I can do about it. And I don't know for sure what the outcome is. The prognosis is good, but you know how about prognoses, sometimes they change. And I'm cranky sometimes, and I'm grumpy, and I don't want it that way. That's not what I ordered up. And in all of this, I see and we see that our attachment to things being different from the way that they are does indeed cause suffering, just like the Buddha said. One more time, the Buddha is right. It's very annoying, but he's right a lot of the time, pretty much all of the time. When I want things to be otherwise, I suffer. And the grumpy mind arises. So one of the things that's interesting is that the Buddha's teachings about the nature 
of suffering and the ending of suffering are described as being very like a medical model. You know, there's some people, there's been some speculation that maybe he knew something about the medicine of the time. It certainly fits with the medicine of our time. There's a symptom. We have suffering. There's distress. You're dissatisfied. Things aren't quite right. We see that the cause of the suffering is this place where we get attached. We want it to be different from the way that it is. We have, there's a cause for the symptom. We know that there's the possibility of a cure. There can be an ending of suffering. And there's a procedure to, to move us toward that cure. In the Four Noble Truths, which is what this teaching is sometimes called, that, that procedure is actually the Eightfold Path of wise uh, view and intention and wise speech, action and livelihood, and wise uh, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. So what is true of all of this it's an, is that it's true not just of the body. So the body isn't the only thing that has difficulties. And sometimes our practice has difficulty. And often at the end of the second full day of retreat, which you have now achieved, all of you, um, many of us are sitting here thinking, this isn't what I thought I was going to get, you know. It's broken or it's different. It's not what I wanted. We come to a retreat of ideas about what it will be like, the story of the retreat. So if you're new to retreat practice, you know, maybe you were really inspired by someone's story of awakening or some description of a retreat that someone else went on and that you read about or that you heard and you went, oh, wow, I want that. You know, I'm going to go to the retreat and that's what will happen for me. It surely will because it happened for this person apparently. And you come and, hmm, you know, it's tough this first couple of days of retreat. It's, you know, we don't call it the swamp for nothing. It's a really hard period of retreat. I'm always glad when retreats are a little bit longer than two days because if you come for a two-day retreat, you get the two worst days of any retreat. So, you know, you don't get to the good stuff. That comes a little bit later when we begin to get kind of into the flow. If you're an experienced student, you know, you may have come thinking, oh, that last retreat, that was terrible. I'm not going to do that one again. I'm going to have the good retreat this time. I know how to do it. Or if you had a really great retreat last time, lots of happiness and ease and bliss, then you're busy often working at, well, let's see, I got up at this time and then I did this and I walked, I walked over there, not over there. And you have a whole plan for how you're going to make it be just like the last retreat. Never works. We don't get the retreat we order up. Ever. I don't know anybody who ever has. You got the retreat that arises in this particular moment. You know? And there are many things that come in a retreat that make it really difficult. And this is a standard list that we often talk about, and I want to mention it tonight because a number of you are really new to the retreat world. And so these are the five things. They're sometimes called the five hindrances. It's desire or aversion. So we've already talked about this a little bit. 
restlessness, sometimes called flurry and worry, sleepiness and torpor and doubt. And these are traditional. They're so traditional on retreat, they're on a list. So it's not a mistake that it's happening to you. You know, it's in the texts from 2,500 years ago. So if it's been around for 2,500 years, it's not just you. And it's so easy in the beginning of practice or even the beginning of any retreat. It's like, oh, it's a problem. It's difficult. And we get judgmental. I think I was saying to our friends Donald and Heather who are teaching the retreat upstairs, you know, we should put these two retreats sequentially. You come to the body retreat and then you go to the judgment retreat because they kind of make sense together because we often have so much judgment about our bodies and our practice. So, so, you know, we see them as a problem and we judge our practice. And it's like, I'm a bad meditator no one else is having these struggles. Sometimes people even come into interviews and say, I think I should go home. You know, I'm just not doing it right. And you know, there's an old story about somebody asking, I think it was Jack Cornfield, about students that they knew on one of the longer retreats back in Massachusetts. He kept saying, they're doing fine, they're doing fine, they're doing fine, they're doing fine, you know, student after student. Finally, the questioner said, what does fine mean? And Jack thought from it, he said, fine means they haven't left. So if you haven't left, and you clearly haven't left, you're doing fine, you're still here. And it's easy to think, no one else but you has these problems. You look, you all look great. You know, we sit up here, I look out at the room, you're quiet, you're still. It's like, whoa, must be really good inside there, right? I, I know it's not, and you know, you look around and you go, oh, that person looks really still, and that look person, and that person, but you don't know what's going on. And it's just as easy to judge our practice as it is to judge our bodies. We need to get over it. Having meditation problems is normal, perfectly normal. If you are sitting on the cushion with a restless mind and body, sometimes falling asleep, filled with desire, hating the retreat, questioning why you ever came here, it's not a problem. This is normal. The mind and body do this on retreat and when we practice. There are things you can do to help, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But the most important thing to do is to be mindful of the situation. As soon as you're mindful, whoa, this mind is crazy, then you're there and you're doing the practice. Isn't that great? It's one of the things I love. It's like All you have to do is know that it's crazy. Know that the mind is wiggling. The restless mind is like this. The mind filled with aversion is like this. So back to the body. There's a particular Wes Nisker quote that I really love. He says, I meditate because I am composed of 100 trillion cells and from time to time I need to reassure them that we are all in this together. (laughs) So how do we do this? How do we reassure those 100 trillion cells? So the Dharma is really also the medicine that we need for deepening the intimacy with our bodies, for bringing the healing and the acceptance of many, many, many parts. Our bodies are our practice. They are our practice. And we find 
that there are difficulties in the body. Everyone has difficulties with their body. No one gets out of it. Things are broken or ill or dysfunctional or a bit sick or aging. And there's no such thing as a body that's a problem in the negative sense of that word. Nobody is perfect. There's always something. And as we get older, there's more things. And we have words that we use like impaired or disabled or deficient that are pejorative and judgmental and not helpful. And they're deeply ingrained in our psyches, really deeply ingrained. We yearn for perfection. So I brought you a poem. It's from a woman by the name of Elizabeth Carlson, and it's called Imperfection. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll read you a couple of little bits of it. She says, I am falling in love with my imperfections. The way I never get the sink really clean, forget to check my oil, lose my car in parking lots, miss appointments I have written down, am just a little late. And here's the part for us this week. I am learning to love the small bumps on my face, the big bump of my nose, my hairless scalp, chipped nail polish, toes that overlap. Learning to love the open-ended mystery of not knowing why. (sighs) What if we could say, the injured body is like this. It's just like this. This is what the ill body is like. This is what aging skin is like. I had a moment in yoga class years ago. I was a lot younger then, but it was already true. And I looked back, and for those of you who are older, you know how your skin begins to get a little wrinkly? Hmm? And I looked back, I was in downward facing dog, you know, so my feet here, my butt here, and my head down here. I looked back at my thighs and I went, What? (laughs) Whose thighs are those? My thighs don't look like that. But of course, they did. And I've learned to wear tights to yoga class. It's much better. (laughs) What if any body was normal simply because it is the way that it is? It just is the way that it is. We have such strange ideas about normal. I got a lab test result back a couple of years ago. I had all this stuff about my heart rate. And I was in Philadelphia and my doctor was here in California. And I was panicked. It just said it was abnormal. Well, it turns out it's a perfectly normal abnormal. And when I saw the cardiologist, he said, hardly anybody has a normal heart rate. And I looked at him and I said, then why do you call it abnormal? I mean, what's normal? It's very strange. Why did they need to scare me, you know? So we sit with our body parts and we, we begin as we hold them to gain some perspective. It's, it, it seems not quite so personal, you know, not quite so um, immediately um, demanding. Whether it's an obstacle in your practice, aversion, restlessness, or whether it's an obstacle with your body, one of the things to consider is that as you notice that, in that moment, your teacher has arrived. Your teacher has arrived. There's another poem that I brought. 
It's a poem that is nothing but questions and the answer to each question is afraid so. Is this going to hurt? Afraid so. Was anyone injured? Do I have to remove my clothes? Will it leave a scar? Will it affect my eyesight? Is the bone broken? Will I have to put him to sleep? Are you contagious? Will we have to wait long? Could this cause side effects? Is the wound infected? Will it get any worse? Afraid so. Afraid so. And in that moment, that's the teacher. That's where we can begin to learn from whatever this experience is. We learn in a very real way, we learn to surf our life. You know, it's an image that really works out here, I think. And when learning to meditate is learning to surf the waves of the mind and the heart. We're learning this week also to surf the waves of the body. So each obstacle in retreat is a teacher for learning how to balance on that kind of wave. And each moment of difficulty in the body is a teacher. The headache, the menstrual cramp, the broken bone, the cancer, and my complicated and difficult eyes. They are my teacher. I don't always want this teacher. I want it to go away. But when I want that, as I noted earlier, it causes more suffering. A few weeks ago at a dinner party, I was pouring a little more wine into the gla- to a glass. I don't have depth perception. My husband cried out, stop! <laughs> because I was happily pouring the wine on the table because I didn't see that the bottle wasn't over the glass, you know? And I cried. I was so embarrassed. And that's, you know, part of the teaching, learning that I have to be mindful. I have to check, you know? hold something, pour, make sure the pour is over the, I'm not even sure, is it over? I hope it is. Um, so learning to, to take that kind of mindfulness, learning to be patient with having to ask for help or having to say to somebody, I can't see. Can I had to ask somebody to read a menu in a Burger King in the airport because I couldn't see it. You know, that feels like, oh, I should be able to see. I should be able to drive, and I can drive some where I know where I am, but places where I don't know, it wouldn't be safe. I can cry, and I do, or I can be curious. You know, what is this like not to have vision on this side? If you're over here, I don't see you. I don't see you until about here, you know, because that's where my left peripheral vision begins to kick in. What's the nature of very limited vision? Lots of people have limited vision. I can find out what their lives are like. I can be part of that. How can I make it work? I asked to sit here because that way not too many people were going to be out of my range of vision, you know. Marcy disappears every now and then, but, you know, she's, she understands. And I can remember to assess distance. It's like this. It's like this, not having vision. I'm not the only one. We could probably have a really interesting conversation with all of you.
because everyone has challenges and some of you are probably way more challenged than I am and working hard at learning from those teachers. Our, and our hearts and minds and bodies are very difficult and very demanding teachers. And we do learn to surf. We do. You know, I know many people, including myself, who have gotten a great deal more anxious as we, as we age. You know, anxiety arises. And I know so many people, all of them practitioners, who have really invented some very wonderful and interesting practices to do in the middle of the night while they are lying there unable to sleep. You know? And so they turn that time, which can be very difficult, into a time for practice. I had an amazing conversation last week, a woman that we just started to talk to in a campground we were in before we got here, and she was telling us about her partner who has early Alzheimer's. And she's bringing her soon to San Francisco to be someplace where she'll be safe. And talking about how this woman knows that she has early Alzheimer's and she's really working with it very, very skillfully. It's an astounding story, you know, to know that it's possible to take that kind of difficulty, that kind of challenge, and make it into a teaching. Last night Bob mentioned the title of this retreat, Finding Freedom in the Body, Mindfulness of the Body as a Gateway to Liberation. Now that sounds pretty good, freedom and liberation. And the Buddha says in his teachings on mindfulness that mindfulness is the most direct path to waking up. So, you know, important to look. What isn't working today in your practice? What was not helpful? Was there too much desire? Was there too much sleepiness? What isn't working with your body? You know, to be mindful, to meet the state with friendliness and curiosity. And mindfulness is the foundation. It's the absolutely necessary ingredient to all this. But it doesn't mean that you can't use remedies. So there are remedies, there are medicines in your practice, if you will, for working with difficult mind states. You know, if you're filled with desire for chocolate ice cream or, you know, a softer bed or whatever, you can also begin to reflect on the fact that chocolate ice cream, after a while, it, if you eat too much of it, it gives you indigestion. If it, after a while it melts and then it turns into goo, it's impermanent doesn't last. And certainly even if you eat it, the satisfaction is gone as soon as the bowl is over. You know, the mattress is going to get hard and lumpy after a while and that won't be so perfect either. So there's nothing that lasts. And reflecting on impermanence helps with desire. and With aversion, the practice of kindness, extending kindness toward yourself or towards someone that is inspiring your aversion um, is a really good way to begin to train the mind to go towards kindness. And if the mind is really restless, then you can really, you know, do a little harder work with your concentration, maybe really work with being just with the breath for a while. And that will, it's hard, you know, the restless mind doesn't want to sit still, but it actually will bring some stability. 
or sleepiness. That's such an issue in the early days of retreat. You know, people fall asleep in the hall, nod off. Sometimes people are even snoring. You know, it's 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 endemic and and or epidemic in uh, a retreat like this. And the Buddha, it's on the list. He expected it. You know, he said, "Stand up." Now, if you're having a hard time staying awake, stand up. He said. Um, you can splash your face with water before you come in. You can pull on your earlobes. He also said you could sit on the edge of a well, which meant that if you kind of did this, you know, you might look suddenly down and realize, oh, and then the adrenaline surge takes care of it. Or you can sit in the forest where there are tigers. And since we do have mountain lions in these hills, you can sit out there and think about that. It probably brings some alertness. Also on that list, I would like to remind us all, is you can take a nap. You know, you don't have to tough it out all day long. Try to pick a time when it's not an instruction sit, preferably like after lunch or after dinner, and and create a little window and have a nap, and then you come back and you're refreshed. refreshed. This is powerful medicine for your practice. These are remedies for things that you could do. And it's the same thing with the body. You know, we're not saying to you, well, just be mindful of this place in the body that's so very difficult, there you can help it out if you need to. I didn't just let my eyes deteriorate. I wasn't just mindful of, oh, look, losing my vision. Losing my vision is like this. That would not have been a very intelligent thing to do. And I'm lucky enough to live in a place where I can get good medical care and get the surgeries that I need and endless rounds of drops that I put into my eyes. And without them, you know, I know that I would not be seeing today. I would not have vision, you know? The cataracts, the glaucoma, the macular holes, the macular holes and the retinal things, those surgeries weren't even available 20 or 30 years ago. My ophthalmologist said we would have given you a white cane. You know, that's sobering. That's very sobering. And it makes me very happy to go through this process that's not always so fun. It's strong medicine, but it means I will likely see again. So here's a few of the things to think about, medicines, antidotes that might be helpful uh, for working with your body and the mind and the heart. A few teachings from a couple of other traditions. One says, turn all mishaps into the path. Turn all mishaps into the path. Turn everything into the path. There's nothing, nothing that is outside the realm of practice. Isn't that great? Nothing. No matter what's going on, you can make it practice. The scattered mind, you know, the sickness. And you come to a retreat and you get sick. That happens. Well, then that's your practice. This is the sickness retreat, you know. And no matter what it is, it's the path. Your roommate, the food, your aching knee, your worry over some upcoming operation, you know, your cold, or your cancer. You know, life is the path. Everything can be worked with. Having a sense of humor really helps, as Bob said. There's another teaching that says, do good, avoid evil, appreciate your lunacy, and pray for help. (laughs) 
I love this teaching. I really love this teaching. I remind myself of it all the time. You know, the first two are pretty easy in some sense and obvious, especially in the retreat world, doing good, avoiding evil. There's not too much that you're going to do here. They're kind of a basic life practice. We understand that. But appreciating your lunacy, that's a tough one. You know, we get so crazy around our bodies and we get so excited about them and you know as I've said I get I've certainly had the idea I would be the ideal patient you know I'd be kind and wise and forbearing and helpful to everyone around me and not too demanding and then my Mary Grace personality gets going and I'm cranky and weepy and scared and fussy and demanding and I don't know my husband's in the back he could probably add a few more words to the list it's true lunacy you know, yikes. It's very hard to appreciate the lunacy under that situation. It helps when I can laugh. The mind gets so nuts on retreat. You know, there are wild ideas that arise. I remember one whole retreat years ago at a Catholic center that we used to use where I was determined that the fountain would be on at certain hours and off at certain hours. And I went through such machinations to try to make that happen. And I was just crazy. It wasn't my fountain. It wasn't my retreat center. You know? But somehow I got that idea. Or maybe what happens is you, know, you fall in love. There's the Vipassana romance. You, know, you see the person that looks so yummy of whatever flavor you're interested in and you make up a whole story about them. Or the other thing can happen. You can have the Vipassana Vendetta and that's when you see someone that, you know, they bug you for some reason or another. But that's where you ask for help. You know, asking for help is... I went crawling into a teacher interview one year. I, I felt like I wanted to have a bag over my head. It was with Joseph Goldstein, actually. And I was having a Vipassana romance. Like, <laughs> Hi, my name is Mary Grace and I'm having a Vipassana romance. And he settled back in his seat and he just laughed. And he was so helpful, you know? Just, just asking for help. We can, you can ask for help. I can ask for help from friends, from teachers, from books, from your cat, from, or from any other being on this planet or elsewhere that you feel like asking. Because it's the asking that changes things, isn't it? And the answer part, that's not yours. You, you can't make an answer come, but the asking somehow shifts. And then there's the basic powerful medicine of basic kindness and friendliness and the practice of metta, the practice of extending kindness to yourself and to others. You can do it as a direct practice working with some phrases of kindness, or you can do it as a stance. You know, you could begin each, each period of practice before we get started on the list, just with a little, you know, may I be peaceful? May I be at ease at my bo- with my body? Now, if there's a part that's particularly difficult, you could, ex- may you be peaceful or may you have ease? You know, really extending that friendliness. Hmm... I have more notes than I have time. (laughs) So being present with each moment 
of our practice, no matter what it is, it's what's asked for. And when we see clearly, when we have moments of awakening, these are moments when there's no greed, no hatred, and no delusion. So awakened moments are that, no greed, no hatred, no delusion. It's not a meditative state. It's not nice lights, or it's not dissolving, or it's not heavenly music. It's the free mind and heart that's fully open to the present moment, fully open to the body, fully open no matter how difficult the situation. So I've done what I could do for my eyes, and the prognosis is good, and gratitude begins to arise, you know. And so the last teaching is really some of the best medicine. And that's a teaching that says, be grateful to everyone. Be grateful to everyone. Everyone is your teacher. There's a Tibetan teaching that I'm very fond of that says, every being on the planet is enlightened but one, and you know who the one is. (laughs) And they are all doing what they're doing to help you wake up. (laughs) So, you know, the difficult students on the retreat or the teacher you don't like or the difficult medical personnel at the doctor's office or in the hospital. These are enlightened beings helping you to try to wake up. And when you don't respond in that way, when gratitude doesn't arise, then you can notice, well, where does your heart close? When do you stop being mindful? When does aversion begin to run the show? And when that happens, when you see that, you can go, aha, that's where I'm not cooked yet. I'm not finished. This is where I'm not awake and I'm not in the least bit enlightened and this is where I need to work. That's good news. You're seeing it. And it's helpful to know that. I think gratitude is so interesting. You know, I've often thought that for us in the West, it's the fifth of the Brahma Viharas. It goes with kindness and compassion and gladness and equanimity and then gratitude. And it's interesting. It's not particularly mentioned by the Buddha, although I'm sure he knew about it. But it seems very helpful to consider it. So what would it be to be really present with your body parts as we go through that list and to be really grateful to each one? You know, consciously grateful. I mean, think, the teeth for grinding up all that food. Thousands of pounds of food in your lifetime, right? The protection that you get from your skin, it holds you together. Or those kidneys cranking out 400 gallons of blood to purify them every day. Or a thank you for each of the 100,000 beats of the heart that happen each day. Or the lungs for the 10 million breaths in a year, right? Or the astounding computer of the brain or whatever it is, you know, way better than any computer that has ever been made and probably ever will be made, 15 to 33 billion neurons working all the time. We, we should be grateful. These are taking care of us in this way. I could, what would it be for me to be grateful to my eye for the things that I am learning, for the appreciation of sight, for seeing as people care for me how much I'm loved. That's, that's such a gift to get that. You know. So for each of you, as we do this, to give the, your attention to the idiosyncrasies of your own bodies, 
and to be grateful to them. To be grateful to each moment of the retreat, each moment, all the beautiful moments, the dawn sky, the turkey families going out for their strolls, you know, the quietness of the hall, the rain. I said to somebody, I don't need to give a talk tonight. We could just sit and listen to the rain, you know. Maybe we should have, I don't know. I don't know. And to be grateful for the difficult things, you know, the person who takes the last bit of salad or the last cookie or the person who's sitting next to you who's being really restless or the person on the other side who's snoring. Be grateful, you know. Your prognosis is good. My prognosis is good. And your prognosis is also good as a meditator. You will see more clearly simply through the medicine and the practice of the Dharma. We can all learn to see clearly, even if our actual physical vision is impaired. And we can all be present in each moment and with every cell in our body. Larry Rosenberg says, the exploration of the body is an opportunity to examine a marvelous and intricate aspect of nature, more intimate because you're in it. And as you look into it and see its true nature, there is liberation in that seeing. We can move from grumpiness to gratitude, whatever difficulty or obstacle or darkness that we face. So I'd like to end with a poem. It's a little bit long, but I think we have time for it. Because it really speaks to how we can transform the difficulties. So the title of the poem is Monet Refuses the Operation. And Monet, if just to remind you, was a wonderful impressionist artist who painted these fabulous scenes of Paris and the countryside around France. And he painted them with lots of little dots and blurry lines and lots of color that was a little bit on the improbable side. And I actually don't know if this was true of him, but um, the supposition of the poem, the premise of the poem, is that he has cataracts and he's talking to his doctor. He says, Doctor, you say there are no halos around the streetlights in Paris, and what I see is an aberration caused by old age and affliction. I tell you, it has taken me all my life to arrive at the vision of gas lamps as angels, to soften and blur and finally banish the edges you regret I don't see. To learn that the line I called the horizon does not exist and sky and water so long apart are the same state of being. 54 years before I could see Rouen Cathedral is built of parallel shafts of sun and now you want to restore my youthful errors fixed notions of top and bottom, the illusion of three-dimensional space, wisteria separate from the bridge it covers. What can I say to convince you 
the House of Parliament dissolves night after night to become the fluid dream of the Thames. I will not return to a universe of objects that don't know each other, as if islands were not the lost children of one great continent. The world is flux and light becomes what it touches, becomes water, lilies on water, above and below water, becomes lilac and mauve and yellow and white and cerulean lamps, small fists passing sunlight so quickly to one another that it would take long streaming hair inside my brush to catch it, to paint the speed of light. Our weighted shapes, these verticals, burn to mix with air and change our bones, skin, clothes to gases. Doctor, if only you could see how heaven pulls earth into its arms and now infinite and how infinitely the heart expands to claim this world blue vapor without end. So let's just sit in these astounding bodies of ours for a few moments and let the lines blur a little bit. Sometimes the only word we need is thank you. And so thank you very much for your kind attention and patience. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.